peculiarity, if you will. For example, two things stand out about the, the, the city of Pergamum. Number one, first of all, it was a center of instruction. We are told, and history teaches us, that the city of Pergamon was one, had one of the most famous and largest libraries of the ancient world. Matter of fact, they had over 200,000 volumes. And next to the library that was founded in the ancient city of Alexandria in Egypt, the library in Pergamon was the largest in the ancient world. So that tells us it was a very learned city. It was a city of education. It was a city uh, of intellect. Uh, many great scholars would come to that city to learn and to study. But it was also the center of idolatry. In the city of Pergamos, there were four temples built to the four, uh, what they considered great Greek gods. There was a temple to Zeus, who was supposed to be the king of the gods. There was one to Dionysus, who he was the god of wine and the god of uh, uh, revelry and the god of fertility and the god of entertainment kind of like Hollywood today. Then there was a, a, a temple to the god Athena, She was a, or goddess Athena. She was the goddess of wisdom and the goddess of war. There was a temple to the god Asclepius. He was the god of healing and medicine. Now, in addition to all this, there were also not one, but there were three temples there in that city dedicated to the worship of the emperor Caesar. Now, I want you to look at verse 13. The Lord Jesus says something remarkable about this city. He says, this city is where Satan's seat or Satan's throne is. So this little church at Pergamos, they were located right in the middle of hell's headquarters. They were living in the shadow of Satan himself. The sights, the sounds of satanic influence were everywhere. And right in the middle of this city of hell was a little colony of heaven called the church at Pergamos. Now let me say this while I'm here. There may be some of you here this morning and you believe you're in a hellish situation. You may be the only Christian at your place of work or employment. You may be the only Christian in your family. Uh, you may be the only Christian in your classroom at school. You may be the only one in your neighborhood who professes Jesus Christ and who comes to church. And you may be feeling like you're living right in the middle of hell's headquarters. Well, friend, that should not discourage you. That ought to encourage you. You say, why, preacher? Well, notice Jesus tells this little church, <clears throat> he says, I know where you dwell. And just as Jesus knew where this church was dwelling, I assure you, Christian, Jesus knows where you are dwelling as well. He knows where you work. He knows where you live. He knows what you're facing. And you are probably exactly where God wants you to be. You say, why would you say that? Because God's probably put you where you're at for the simple purpose of being a witness to him in a dark place. Now, the Bible tells us we are to be light of the world. Amen? So let me ask you something. Where is light put to be most effective? In the darkest place. So I want you to keep that in mind. That's what God does with us, Christians. Listen to me. Whenever it's darkest, the most ungodly, the most unchristlike, where faith is totally absent, there God's going to put his people so they can be a light in a dark place. So right here where Satan dwelled, we're told God put this little church. And when you study the history of this church, <coughs> you find out they were faithful. They were, were fruitful. They were a solid church. They were following Jesus. But they were a church camped right on the doorsteps of hell. Now Jesus deals with this church in several different ways. And I want you to look at those this morning. First of all, first thing Jesus does is he commends their loyalty. Now, again, he points out to the church that you're living right where Satan's throne is. The Greek word for seat in the King James or for throne 
in the other translations literally means seat of authority or seat of power. So what the Lord is saying is, I know that you're living in a place where Satan is in charge. Now let me explain something to you. Contrary to popular belief, Satan is not the king of hell. The Bible says that he is the prince of the power of this world and of this age. And this church was located on the devil's doorstep. They were living in the hallways of hell. They were surrounded by uh, a den of demons, yet they were still loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see they were loyal, first of all, in the confession. Look at verse 13. Jesus observed about this church, and they hold us fast, my name. Now, when you understand what's being said there, you see that this church, they refused to be quiet about the Lord Jesus Christ. They would not deny the name of Jesus. I believe because this church knew the power that was in the name of Jesus. In John chapter 14, beginning verse 13, Jesus says, And whatsoever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. I believe this church also knew the preeminence of the name of Jesus. Because Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I also believe that this church knew the presence of the name of Jesus. Jesus himself said in Matthew 18 and verse 20, where, one, where two or more are gathered in my name, he said, I'll be right there in the midst. They also understood the very purpose of the name of Jesus. Because Matthew chapter 121, remember the angel said, and she will bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The purpose of the name Jesus. I'm telling you, I believe this little church at Pergamum, they would not deny the wonderful name of Jesus. They love the name, sang about the name. I believe they were living in the name of Jesus. There's an old song that had a, a verse in it that said, Take the name of Jesus with you, child of sorrow and of woe. It will joy and comfort give you. Take it then where'er you may go. If this church, I'm going to tell you something, and it's true of any church, if this church at Pergamum, or at Pergamum, if they would have simply kept quiet about Jesus, they'd have stayed out of a whole lot of trouble. I'm going to tell you, if churches today simply keep quiet about Jesus, we would stay out of a whole lot of trouble. But my attitude is, not going to keep quiet about Jesus, bring the trouble on. Let's face it head on. Now, this church here, folks, again, if they had just, just ignored Jesus, if they hadn't stood for Jesus, they, 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 they wouldn't have had the problems they had. I mean, they could have talked about God all they wanted to because nobody was concerned about their particular God because in this city, everybody had a God. And it was just natural. You were supposed to worship a God of some kind. Uh, you could worship Zeus or Apollo or, or uh, Dionysus or whoever it may be. In fact, everybody was expected to have some God, but it was when this little church steadfastly confessed that Jesus Christ was God and that he was God alone, that's when they got into serious trouble. Now, I want you to think about this. Isn't that the way it is today? I mean, you talk about God all you want to. People don't mind you talking about God because practically everybody in America believes in some kind of God. I know they say, well, I'm an atheist. Well, you believe in the God of self then. But everybody believes in some kind of God or some kind of a higher power or, or some kind of a uh, spirituality. But friend, when you begin to talk about Jesus Christ, it's amazing how people will react. Take an athlete who is a Christian. He's being interviewed, which you don't see it much anymore, but he's being interviewed. If he brings up Jesus Christ, they're going to cut that interview short. A politician, if he speaks about Jesus, if that man's a Christian and he speaks about Jesus, 
They're going to go to a commercial. You know, they're going to mock him. They're going to ridicule him. Many people, folks, they don't mind giving lip service to God, but they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. But do you know why this church here in the book of the Revelation, why this church stood by the name of Jesus, and I believe kept talking and kept preaching and kept sharing the name of Jesus? It was because they couldn't help it. I mean, I believe they were so in love with Jesus that Jesus was the natural topic of conversation for them. You know, I I remember a story, a pastor told a story of how he had been witnessing to a couple for several months. He was trying to lead them to Christ. And the the lady of the couple, she said, Preacher, uh, I'm going to tell you why I I don't think I want to be a Christian. He said, Well, I wish you would. She said, I know a young man who's a Christian. And she said, I got to tell you something. The topic of his conversation is always Jesus. She said, it's just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's all you hear from him. And she said, now, preacher, if I become a Christian, am I going to have to talk about Jesus all the time? The preacher said, no, man, absolutely not. But he said, let me be honest with you. If you truly become a Christian, if you truly surrender your life to Jesus Christ and you fall in love with him, you're going to want to talk about Jesus. He's going to be the center of your conversation. You're going to go to bed thinking about Jesus. You're going to get up in the morning with Jesus on your heart. I agree with him. Let me illustrate it this way. Those of you that are married, or maybe if you're not married, you've got a fiancé. You remember now uh, when you first began dating or first began courting for marriage and how you saw your, the face of your husband or your wife everywhere. They were always on your heart and mind. Some of you all look at me like, no, that never happened, preacher. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe it's hard to think back that far, but you, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, guys, you see your wife's face in every blossoming flower and every budding rose. Ever canceled check? You see your wife's face. You know what I'm talking about? Or maybe, let me drive this home. Maybe when you had that first child. You know, that, that beautiful, handsome little boy, that precious little girl. They were on your heart and mind all the time, weren't they? And you were telling everybody about them. Or that first grandbaby. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. Uh, I don't understand that yet. But uh, some of y'all have grandkids, and apparently your grandkids are the smartest, best-looking, the greatest grandkids in the world. Amen. See what I mean? Now, folks, listen to me. I said all that to say this. Friend, that is the way it needs to be when you truly fall in love with Jesus Christ. He's going to be the center focus of your life and your conversation. Amen. You'll want to talk about Jesus. But I want you to see this church at Pergamos, they were not just low in their confession, they were loyal in the creed. Because look again, verse 13. Jesus commends them, he says, and hast not denied my faith. In other words, they didn't give an inch in the faith. They, uh, like uh, Jude says, they didn't waver from the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Today, they could have been called fundamentalists. I realize, that, might, that word makes a lot of people nervous today. Because the word fundamentalist, I, I realize, it, it has some negative connotations to it. But let me explain to you, folks. Fundamentalist, you know what that means? That means this church believed in the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means they believed in the deity of Jesus. They believed in the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross. They believed in a literal, physical resurrection of Jesus from the grave. They believed in an actual, visible, physical second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This church being fundamentalist, they believed in a literal hell and a literal heaven, and they believed the Bible was totally the Word of God. Now, let me say something to you. If you believe everything that I just said, then like it or not, friend, 
you're a fundamentalist. Again, I don't particularly like that term, fundamentalist, because it's become a a pejorative term today. I I realize it has some negative connotations to it. When you say fundamentalist, it conjures up the thought of somebody who believes that women who wear slacks to church and makeup are going to hell. Or, you know, men who have hair down on their ears or on their collars or people that wear tattoos, they're just not saved. They need to be right with God. Or somebody who enjoys life, they say, well, that person, they can't be right with God if they enjoy life. Let me explain something to you, friend. I want you to know right right here, right now, and many of you already know this about me, I am not a fundamentalist in dress. You say, you're wearing a suit and tie. That's because my wife makes me. I'm not a fundamentalist in dress. I'm not a fundamentalist in deportment, but I am a fundamentalist in doctrine, and I thank God that I am. Years ago, when God called me to preach, and I first entered into the ministry, folks, there were certain fundamental doctrines that I had in my heart and in my soul, and I made up my mind I wasn't going to give up on them no matter what anyone said, no matter what anyone tried, they tried to convince me. Otherwise, I was hanging on to those fundamental doctrines. And believe me, those doctrines, those fundamental doctrines, folks, they have stood me in good stead for many years now. You know, oftentimes you hear about how seminaries ruin students. You'll hear how liberal colleges ruin some promising young preachers. And I do believe that. I do believe it happens. But let me be very clear here, folks. You cannot always fault the college or the seminary. Now listen to me. Because the only foundation that can be shaken is the foundation that wasn't solid to begin with. When that foundation's solid, it's solid. It'll stay. When a man makes up his mind, no matter what he uh, goes through, no matter what happens, that he will not deny the faith that's found in the Word of God, I'm going to tell you, hell and all the darkness of this world combined cannot shake him loose from his beliefs. Jesus goes on, look at verse 13, to commend a man there by the name of Antipas. Now, it's interesting. He calls him his faithful martyr. So apparently there was a, a standout saint in this church who died for the faith. Now, the word's interesting, Antipas. It means against everything. So there's two words, anti, which means against, and pas, which means all or everything. So Antipas, he was a man who was willing to stand against everyone and everything if they stood against Jesus Christ. He was faithful unto death. Now, I want to tell you something. Jesus calls this man my faithful martyr. Friend, I'm going to tell you that's one of the highest compliments that a person could ever be paid. There was a, here was a man who stood up against the world. He faced the world, even though the world stood against him and took his life because of Jesus Christ. He said, I'm not going to budge. I'm not giving an inch. I'm going to stand against you and stand for Christ. Someone once asked the great preacher and theologian, Scottish uh, preacher and theologian, John Knox, or they said to him, said, you know, if you take a stand for Jesus Christ, all the world will be against you. John Knox said, then I'll just have to be against all the world. The church at Pergamos, this was a church that was loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he commends their loyalty. But I want you to see, secondly, he condemns their, uh, and I would say, laxity or negligence. Even though this church was a church of devoted loyalty, they had become a church of doctrinal laxity. Now, this was a church that had begun to compromise. Now, some people, especially today, they may not like where I'm going with this. All I can tell you is hang on for the ride. Folks, apparently there were some liberal termites that were beginning to eat away at the very foundation of this church. Specifically, Jesus had two things against them. Look at verse 14 and 15. He said, you got some there, they hold to the doctrine of Balaam. 
and you got some there that hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, let me be very clear on this. The problem was not that the church itself was holding these liberal doctrines. The problem was they were tolerating those who did hold these liberal doctrines. They had begun to compromise their beliefs for the sake of peace in the church. And there's a lesson we need to learn here, folks, and I want you to tune your ears and listen real close. Liberalism. Whether it's liberalism in a denomination or liberalism in a church, wherever you find liberalism, somewhere under the surface, somewhere lurking in the shadows, you're going to find compromise. This created two problems in the church. Number one, there was a problem of unspiritual carnality. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and commit fornication. Now, to understand the doctrine of Balaam, you have to understand the story. And I'm sure there's many here that remember the story. Balaam was a Gentile prophet. He knew God. He walked with God. Balak was king of the Moabites. He was a Moab king, and he wanted Balaam to use his prophetic influence with God to curse God's people, to curse uh, the children of Israel. So uh, Balak, he went to bribe Balaam to curse God's people. And Balaam, he wanted the money, apparently. So he tried, not once, not twice, but three times. And God told him, he said, listen, partner, you're not going to curse Israel. The only thing you're going to do is bless Israel. Well, Balaam should have left well enough alone. But I'm going to tell you, he reminds me of a lot of preachers and a lot of prophets, P-R-O-F-I-T, today. They're more interested in that money than they are being faithful to God and faithful to their calling. And so he said, you know what? I've got an idea. He told Balak, he said, listen, if I can't curse Israel, then maybe I can corrupt Israel. He said, if I can corrupt Israel, then God, we don't have to worry about cursing them because God will curse them. And his plan was simple. He, he wanted the Israelites to commit fornication and adultery with Moabite women. So he began to prophesy and tell them it was okay for them to cohabitate with these Moabite women. And so Balaam, he succeeded in getting the Israelites both to worship foreign false Moabite gods and also cohabitate with foreign Moabite women. And when they did that, God, who is true to his name, True to his word and true to his nature, he cursed Israel and he slew 24,000 of them. Now that tells you the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam, folks, listen to me. It's liberalism at its finest. You see, the doctrine of Balaam is simply the mixture of the church with the world. The doctrine of Balaam is, is the attitude that says, well, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Listen to me. Satan is always, always trying to get the church involved in two areas. He's always trying to get the church involved in the worship of the world. And he's always trying to get the church involved in the wickedness of the world. The Bible says two of the greatest sins that God hates is the sin of idolatry and the sin of immorality. So this church at Pergamum, they were being taught by some within the church that it was okay to worship pagan gods. It was okay to engage in sexual immorality with temple prostitutes. What they were saying was it's okay to profess to be a Christian and to go worship Zeus at the same time. It's okay to profess to be a Christian and to follow Christ, but go ahead and worship Zeus and have relations with the temple prostitutes. Just And the attitude was, when in Rome, do as the Romans. Just do as the Romans do. You know, go along to get along. Just be tolerant. Don't make any waves. Well, I'm going to tell you something. 
we got people who believe that today, that the church needs to be more like the world, that we need to talk the world's language, we need to sing the world's songs, that we need to use the world's methods within the church. Because if we don't relate, if we don't uh, do that and we don't relate, then we're not relevant. It's a good Greek word for that. Hogwash. Folks, I'm going to tell you what I've said so many times. Dr. Vance Havner is the first one that said this, and I agree with him 100%. You don't have to dress like a clown to witness to the serpent. I'm afraid, I'm going to be honest, quite frankly, I'm afraid the world today is suffering for the sins of the church far more than the church is suffering for the sins of the world. You say, what do you mean? I'm saying the church needs to be what it's supposed to be and quit playing games with the gospel. And if you're going to be a Christian, live for Christ. Don't compromise. I'm going to make this real straight and plain. If you're taking notes, you may want to write this down, but I think you'll remember it. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you surrendered your life to Him, you've been saved and understand something. We have been called to be different. We've been called to be separate. We've been called to be holy, to be righteous. We've been called to be clean in a world that's dirty. We've been called to be light in a world filled with darkness. Folks, we've been called to be wise in a world that's deceived. And we have been called to be holy in a world that is depraved and degrading. God help us be the Christians that we should be. That Christ expects us to be. I want to say that was a problem of unspiritual carnality. Now I want to see number two, the problem of unbiblical authority. Look at verse 15. <coughs> Jesus said, So hast thou also them that hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, uh, what was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Well, folks, the best clue comes from the meaning of the word itself. The word Nicolaitan, literally two words, it means to conquer or dominate the people. The first word is Nike. We know what the word Nike is. The word Nike means victory. Actually, the word Nike means domination. And then the second word is the word laos, which means people. That's where we get the word laity from. It's from that word. So it literally means to have victory over or to dominate the people. Now, evidently, there were some people in the church there at Pergamos, at Pergamum, they were trying to set up some form of priestcraft within the church. That is, they were teaching that the clergy is to be totally separate from the laity and must be elevated above the laity. So they were trying to set up uh, an ecclesiastical hierarchy where the priest would be up here and the people would be down here. So that way you would have to come and confess your sins to a priest and not to God. And you couldn't interpret the Bible for yourself. You had to have a priest do that for you. And therefore the priest would be the final authority over you and not the Word of God. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, you're talking about the Catholic Church. I'm talking about Scripture and history. And I'm talking about the false doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Did I say Catholicism? Did I? No, I did not. Do I think it? Absolutely. But that's beside the point. <clears throat> Jesus had something to say to these people. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 9. He said, do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. I don't want anybody ever call me Father Reed. I had that happen one time. Jeff, I was in New York City. It was after 9-11. A bunch of us firefighters, chaplains were up there. And it, we were with a bunch of firefighters there in New York City. And this young firefighter come up. And we were identified as chaplains, had on the badge and the, the patch and stuff. But he come up. And he, of course, he's Catholic, which if you've ever been to New York, there's a lot of Catholic folks in New York. He came up to me, tapped me on the shoulder. He said, 
excuse me, Father, could I talk to you a minute? I was like, <laughs> I said, son, uh, I'm not a father. I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor in the chapel. He said, well, I didn't know how to address you. I said, well, you can call me anything you want, but unless, uh, unless you're my child, don't call me father. I said, I'm not your father. And I want you to listen to me, folks. The reason is when you call someone father, you look up to them. And I don't want anybody looking up to me. I don't want anybody in the church looking at me. I want you looking to Jesus Christ, okay? Listen, when you call someone father, you look up. But when you call someone brother or sister, you look out. And we're all just brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, there's only one who is to be elevated and exalted in the church, and that is the Lord Jesus himself. How many times you heard me say this? The ground around the cross is level. I'm no better than you are. You're no better than me. If you're saved, then you're saved just like I was. By grace, through faith, in Christ alone. You don't have to go through me to get to God. You don't need me to understand the Word of God. Now, let me say this. God has delegated authority in the church to the pastor. God has called the pastor to be the spiritual authority and leader in the church. But in terms of our relationship to God, the Bible makes it clear we're all priests under the authority of our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to see the third thing. He commends their loyalty. He condemns their negligence. But he challenges their love. Look at the first word, verse 16. Repent. Repent. Now, it's interesting that Jesus calls the church to repent. Because thinking about it, the church itself really wasn't doing anything wrong. I mean, they were not engaging in immorality. They personally were not engaging in liberalism. But they were tolerating others who were engaging in these evil doctrines and practices. And they allowed these things to happen in the church and did not take a stand against it. Let me be very clear. When you allow things like this, false doctrine or liberalism, to perpetrate in a church or denomination, you yourself need to repent. For instance, I'll illustrate it. Say I I don't mean to, but I leave the door open one night at my house. And a thief or a murderer comes in. He takes the lives of my family. Now, I'm not guilty of murder, but I am guilty of negligence. Folks, that was the crime of the church at Pergamos. They were not liberals. They had become an accomplice to liberalism. They had not stood up for the truth. They hadn't defended the truth. And Jesus tells them, you got one alternative, repentance or retribution. Look at verse 16. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The church, and what Jesus was saying, he's making it clear, if the church will not deal with liberalism and false doctrine, Jesus said, I'll deal with it myself. And he'll come and gather the wheat and burn the tares. And notice how he's going to fight against this false doctrine. He says, with the sword of my mouth. We all know what he's talking about. He's talking about the sword of the word of God. Now, may I say this and be real real clear about it, folks. The only thing that can fight against liberalism is the word of God. That's it. You cannot outfox the liberal. You cannot outyell the liberal. You cannot outargue the liberal. You cannot outflank the liberal. The only thing you can do with liberal is just stick to the Word of God. And I want you to mark this down big, straight, and plain. When a church quits standing by the Word of God, God will quit standing by that church. You say, well, I know some liberal churches. They're huge churches. Well, good night, friend. Just because that river's wide don't mean it's deep. Oh, I know churches, they, they are growing and they're huge. And you know, a preacher never preaches on heaven, hell, or eternity, or the blood, or on the cross. On, on the, the judgment of sin. 
Really? Well, if we just wanted to throw a party every week and tell everybody what they wanted to hear, we'd have a big crowd too, folks. You remember what I told you, that cowboy logic, just because that river's wide don't mean it's deep. Matter of fact, Jesus warned us that if we didn't stand by the Word of God, we'd be judged by the Word of God. John chapter 12, 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. I want to see the final thing. Jesus commends their loyalty. He condemns their, their negligence. He challenges their love. Now he brings a little comfort to the leadership. Verse 17 makes twofold promise. He says, to him that overcometh. That is, to those who remain loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ, loyal to his person, loyal to his precepts, who will not compromise with liberalism or false doctrine, he promises two wonderful things. First of all, verse 17, he tells us, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. Now manna, you remember manna, that was uh, what the children of Israel eat in the wilderness. That was uh, the bread that was baked in heaven's oven, and God provided for them. Remember Moses took some of that manna, <clears throat> put it in a golden pot. He put the pot in the Ark of the Covenant. He put the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies where no man could eat it, no man could see it because it was hidden. Yet Jesus says there's going to come a day when all of us can eat of that hidden manna. He's talking about God's food. Let me, let me explain exactly what he's saying. He means that we'll be able to enjoy forever all the blessings that God has for us. That's what he's talking about. You know, the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. You talk about a party. You talk about a precious feasting. We're going to have what, what, what a great time that's going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb when we eat of the hidden manna. We partake of the bread of life from the table of God. Now look at the second thing. We'll also enjoy God's fellowship. Chapter, verse 17. Second part. And we'll give him a white stone, and in that stone, or on that stone, the stone, a new name written, which no man knoweth, saying, saving he that receiveth it. Now, this white stone was a stone that was used by close friends to enter into a covenant relationship. Let me explain it to you. In days of old, two men, they would take a white stone, they would break that stone, they would each take a half, and on one side of the half of the stone, each man would write a secret word that only he and the other man knew. And then they would exchange those pieces of stone. And what that represented, they were signifying to one another uh, that everything you have belongs to me. Everything I have belongs to you. Then at any given time, they could come to, it's kind of a blood brother pact and a covenant. At any time, they could come to one another's business, one another's house. They could present that stone and get whatever they wanted. Again, it was, it was a, a covenant relationship that was established by this white stone. Now, what's Jesus saying? The Lord Jesus is saying that everything God has, we have. That's what he's saying. And he's saying someday we're going to have everything that's coming to us. We're going to be able to enjoy God's fellowship forever. We have a name, folks, that is so special, that is so precious, that only we're going to know it because only we will receive it. Let me explain this. You know, my relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, friend, it is so special. It is so precious to me that it's almost impossible to describe it to those who do not know the Lord. I think one of the best ways to explain it is remember what David wrote in the 23rd Psalm. Remember the 23rd Psalm? David said, uh, in one part of it, he said uh, that one day God's going to prepare a table before us. He's talking about God providing a need. That's God's food. Then he says one day we're going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's God's fellowship. That's the two points. It's being spoken of in verse 17. Now, 
Let me wrap it up by saying this. God's food and God's fellowship, they're reserved for God's family. So my question in closing is this. Are you part of that family? Are you part of God's family? I mean, would you like to be part of that family? Would you like to eat God's food? Would you like to have God's fellowship? Would you like to enter into that, that joy and the fellowship with God? Well, friend, you can today if you'll hold fast to the name and the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be part of that family. And it all begins, friend, by having a personal relationship with Him as your Savior and Lord, by surrendering your life totally and completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. I'm going to ask you to bow your head this morning. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I'm going to ask Christians a question or two. Those of you who profess to be Christians and be members of the family of God. I'm going to give you a little bit of encouragement as your pastor. In the days in which we're living, it's awful easy to compromise. It's awful easy just to go with the flow instead of face the, instead of face the opposition and the onslaught of this dark and evil world. But I want to encourage you something, Christian. Do not compromise with the world. Don't sell out your Savior. Don't do it. Stand for Jesus. Stand on God's Word and stand firm. And if you'll do that, Christian, you will not be blown around and tossed about by every wind of false doctrine and liberalism. Now, having said that, let me say this. Have you been living a life of compromise? You profess Jesus Christ, but you have been compromising your faith because of the world around you. And you think it's so I can maintain peace. That is not peace. That is subjugation to sin. And that is selling out your Savior. If you've been living a life of compromise, you need to be at this altar in just a minute. You need to ask God to forgive you and restore you once again. I'm going to tell you more than any time in my lifetime and probably any time in anybody else's lifetime here in this church, we need uncompromising Christians, Christians with conviction today to stand for Jesus Christ. I pray you'll be one of those. Father, thank you that you give us encouragement, that you give us the guidance that we need. I pray we would take this to heart. I pray for those who do not have a relationship with you, that they would do so today. They would just give up on self and the world. They would surrender their life to Jesus Christ and establish that covenant relationship with you. And then I pray for Christians today, those who perhaps they are living in a hellish situation. Maybe they are the only Christian at work, at school, at home. God, give them courage. Give them strength. Give them wisdom so they continue to stand for Jesus Christ. And then I pray for Christians today who are living a life of compromise. God, show, show each of us the importance of being firm in our faith, of standing on your word, standing for our Savior Jesus. I pray for those today who need to rededicate their life or need to surrender their life to you. They would have the courage to make that decision. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand, please?